Let the spirit of the Kennedys and the magic of the Disney Brothers be with you always. Blood and Business Legacy Merch. Available now. Let's run faster, work harder, burn brighter before we're gone. Order your Blood and Business Legacy Merch today. Welcome to Blood and Business. I'm Bethany. And I'm Cassie. Today, we're looking at a brother duo whose imagination and belief in each other changed the world. Their influence is more alive today than ever before, and their mark has been recorded in every nation on Earth. They shaped the landscape of the entertainment industry that we know today and are some of the most influential people in all of American history. Their biggest mission? To spark joy and happiness in as many hearts as possible and to do it in a way that could only be explained by magic. They are Roy and Walt Disney. So where do we leave off? Roy's job is about to get just a bit easier. From making nearly zero profit in 1932, by 1934, they were making $660,000 a year in profit. Not gross sales, profit. They had landed a deal with United Artists, which fronted 60% of the cost to make 20 new short films a year, and they were also receiving profits from old movies that were still getting more and more visibility. And then a huge factor was also merch. We love a merch drop. We love a merch drop. Disney is the goat when it comes to merch. We know this. But it was about a third of their income that they were bringing in in this period in like 1934. A third. Crazy. That's insane. And also, <laughs> we haven't even mentioned the dates here, but like this is the Great Depression. Oh my gosh. I didn't even think about that. Movies were about the cheapest form of entertainment that people had access to during the Great Depression at only a quarter a ticket, which I did the inflation math on it, and it's still under $5 today. Some theaters were even hosting bingo nights and like making a whole evening of it. I wonder if TVs were like around here or like not quite yet. We're okay. almost there. So yeah, it makes sense. You would pay $5 to go 100%. see a movie, especially if you don't have a TV in your house. There are a million things that helped Disney become like how <laughs> insanely successful it is now. But I think that during the Great Depression, obviously, if you're going to be able to go out, you probably aren't going to be able to afford childcare as well. So you're like bringing the whole family. Yeah. And as the entire entertainment industry was like, like kind of struggling or whatever, the one thing that people were paying for was to entertain the entire family, maybe like one night every few weeks. Mm -hmm. And so the Disney movies were ones that they were able to bring all the kids and all the whole family to. Yeah. So that was the movies that everyone was choosing to go see out of like all the options, you know. So let me actually just shoot some census data for you. We need to like fast forward just five or six years for these dates. But from the years of 1940 to 1965, the number of children aged five to 14 years old doubled. Yes, one third of the U.S. population was under 14 years old. Oh so, my yes. gosh. So it's literally like the stars aligned. Right place, <laughs> yeah. right place, right time. Yeah, like you need hard work, you need talent, 
everything, but you also need a bit of good luck. And this was definitely Walt's good luck. Yeah, holy cow. So you bring up television. When like the vast majority of the movie business was being snuffed out by television, this is like the years of 1940 to 1965. That's like where we're moving into. And that's when TVs come out. Everybody is starting to be able to afford to have their own television. The Disney demographic was exploding. They were releasing movies as fast as they could. But you know, Walt, what did he do? Hopped on kids TV shows. The Mickey Mouse Club, Zorro. They had a behind the scenes like special about the making of 10,000 Leagues Under the Sea, which I think would probably have been like crazy for the time. Like there's probably not a lot of behind the scenes. We're probably fascinated by that. Yes. And they had a bunch of shows that we've never heard of, but they were freaking in it. I had no idea that the Mickey Mouse Club was so old. Like I knew... It was kind yeah. of like a vintage show, but I didn't realize that it came out literally when television was like yes. thing. Yes, and it, sh- it had to have like continued for freaking forever, run forever, because I'm pretty sure off the top of my head, this was, I didn't research this, but I'm pretty sure Justin Timberlake and Britney Spears were in the Mickey Mouse Club. I think you're the right. Show. Before we get to the 1960s, at the end of that census data, there were a few noteworthy things that happened. In 1930, Roy and Edna brought into the world their one and only child, Roy Edward Disney. Roy Jr. was a part of the Disney company from his earliest years, often being left at the Disney studio to have his father babysit while his mother, Edna, went shopping. Okay. She's like, if you're going to be at work all weekend, I'm going shopping. (laughs) Kudos to her. In 1933, Lillian and Walt gave birth to their first baby girl, Diane Marie Disney. And then three years later, they adopted their youngest child, Sharon May Disney. I also had no idea that he adopted. I know. I didn't know that until I researched this. Yeah, that's crazy. Pretty cool. Yeah. Their girls only ever said wonderful things about their dad, that he was always their best friend growing up. And although they do report that he was slightly insane, (laughs) he was an overgrown child at heart and that he exhausted them with his obsession over the train that he installed at their home. It literally had tracks like running from the front of the house, like around to the back, like that you could. Oh my gosh. Yeah. When you give a child millions of dollars <laughs> literally like they do with it. you could literally get on this train and ride it around that the is backyard hilarious. apparently it wasn't quite as cool as walt thought it was but they also said that their life was pretty normal like there wasn't anything mickey-esque at home walt had like plenty of him at work like i said earlier he co- kind of compartmentalized personal life and work life yeah personal life and work life and his like vulnerable like actual Sensitive intimate soul. relationships and mm-hmm. then his work professionalism yeah where he had to be a bit of a bad guy i feel like if you're the owner or founder you can't get out of being the bad guy sometimes right and we'll talk about that too their house was really quiet they said although they lived in the middle of beverly hills and roy and walt were some of the biggest names in hollywood at the time they said that they did not know that as one of their kids like you wouldn't know that their parents were anything but just like well off and running a business yeah entrepreneurs Right around this time, beginning in 1932 and then a few years after, the Walt Disney Studios staff mysteriously grew to a level that was obviously beyond what was needed for the short films that they were currently producing. Rumors started to circulate about a new Alice in Wonderland feature-length film, which obviously was not the case because we did not get blessed with that one until the 1950s, but... By 1934, the studio was working on their first feature-length film, and I know that you know what it is, Beth. Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. Wow, I remember as a kid being like, wow, this is vintage. 
their first feature-length film. Walt said that if it wasn't good, they would just trash it. If it was good, they could profit a million bucks. He predicted that they would spend about a quarter of a million dollars and that it would take about 18 months to create, from storyboard to silver screen. I'm going to say that all of those estimates were wrong. (laughs) You would be correct. Production took five years. The staff grew from 150 employees to 750 employees, and it costs $1.5 million to make. Yikes. It quickly grossed, though, $8 million at the box office, mind you, during the Great Depression in 1938. Wow, I bet Roy was, like, losing his mind, Losing his mind. During the project, he was like, That's a huge risk. Yeah. Comscore is a third-party global media measurement and analytics company, and they determined that since its debut, around 109 million tickets have been sold to Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. Since 1937, it has been released in theaters four times and made around $184.9 million at the box office overall. But that is ticket prices in the 30s, 80s, and 90s without adjusting for inflation. At today's average ticket price, the film would have made nearly a billion dollars in the U.S. Roy and Walt used the profit from the original release of Snow White to build a new state-of-the-art studio with all the bells and whistles, way more decked out than any other animation studio had ever been before. Every piece of equipment was of the highest quality. There were no clocks in the building. Apparently, Walt hated them. The space was booming with new staff getting hired constantly, and they quickly had to remodel and add on offices and rooms. There was no minimum requirement for footage to be turned in by their artists, and in fact, they were actually encouraged to throw out an entire day's work if they didn't like it. They put a bunch of their artists through high-level training. Allegedly, they shelled out around $100,000 in the 1930s, just on furthering education for their staff. And this was unheard of at the time. Walt and Roy also used the profits from Snow White to build their parents a house in North Hollywood as a 50th wedding anniversary present. So Elias and Flora moved from Oregon to LA, but really quickly, Flora complained about a weird smell coming out of the furnace. Walt had a studio repairman come by to fix it, but unfortunately they hadn't actually fixed the leak because the housekeeper came in the next morning and found both of his parents unconscious and pulled them out onto the front lawn. They were rushed to the hospital and their dad, Elias, survived, but their mom did not. They had lived in their house for less than a month when Flora died on November 26, 1938, at age 70. Walt took a day off to attend his mother's funeral, but then he drove right back into work. A lot of Disney movies feature motherless children, which some theorize was a subconscious reaction in Walt to feeling guilty over what happened to their mother, but Snow White didn't have a mother, and that came out before she passed, so I don't really know if there's anything to that theory. I wonder when Bambi came out, because after Bambi's mom actually like died in the yeah. movie. It wasn't just an absent mother. That for sure could have been. Yeah. Roy and Walt were always very accessible to their staff. Both of their offices were modest in size and sat behind just one secretary in a tiny reception area. They insisted on being on a first-name basis with all of their employees, and Walt, not needing to be in the books all day like Roy had to, spent a minimal amount of time behind the drawing table he used for a desk. I'm sure you can imagine how often he dropped in on meetings and creative sessions to see how things were coming along. Everyone who worked with Walt agrees that his superpowers came out as an editor and a critic of stories. That was his genius, telling a story. His story conferences were said to be very democratic, a true back and forth with anyone present who had an idea. 
What he was looking for in those sessions is summed up in this quote by Walt himself. We have but one thought, and that is for good entertainment. We like to have a point to our stories, not an obvious moral, but a worthwhile theme. Our most important aim is to develop definite personalities in our cartoon characters. We don't want them to be just shadows, for merely as moving figures, they would provoke no emotional response from the public. Nor do we want them to be parallel or assume the aspects of human beings or human actions. We invest them with life by endowing them with human weaknesses, which we exaggerate in a humorous way, rather than a caricature of life. Walt Disney. This isn't to say, though, that they were just the most pleasant people to be around or that they were the easiest people to work for. They provided all of these freedoms and luxuries because they expected high quality results to come from their investments. When Walt would walk through the office during the day, he would cough unnecessarily loud as to literally warn his employees that the boss was around. Anyone who heard the cough would quickly tell everyone else, man is in the forest. Oh my gosh, from Bambi. That is so cute. I think it would be so interesting to work in that environment. I would love to be a fly on the wall. But also I wonder if like everyone who was working on the projects like just knew how big and like how long lasting. Like, cause obviously at this point it's already popular. They're like winning awards. Right. And Mickey Mouse is like a household name, but I, I don't know if they knew at the time, like how long their I, legacy would live no on. There's no way, I don't think. You know that Walt was never satisfied. He always needed to improve, always do better. And most people just aren't wired that way. We like comfort over progress. He's kind of like Michael Jordan. If you've seen The Last Dance, I feel like that is a very absolutely common theme in that show is that Michael Jordan wanted to be the best, wanted to be the winning team, and he wanted you to win right along with him. Absolutely. But he was okay with like sacrificing, I don't know, his image and the way that people thought of him. He didn't need to be the nice guy or the friendliest, whatever. Like he was going to work the hardest and be the best. He wanted the results over the like like, niceties. and A bunch of people think that they want to be the best, but in (laughs) reality, they don't want what it takes. Exactly. He wanted to win and that was his focus and he would have your back no matter what, but you had to match that effort or you were in a world of hurt. So you wanted to be on his team because you were going to win and when he won, you won together. But winning, being the best, isn't what everyone thinks it is. To be the best, you have to do what no one else is willing to do. So when it comes down to it, most people don't actually want to win. Walt's attention to detail and drive for innovation sometimes meant delays and cost overruns. His employees weren't always quite on the same page, and so on May 29th, 1941, nearly half of their art department walked out the front doors to hold a strike outside of the building. They demanded more pay and were trying to form a union. Walt immediately felt betrayed. He wasn't able to understand how people who worked with him, people who he provided so much freedom and encouragement to, could be unhappy. It was actually a traumatic experience for him, and his employees that worked there at the time say that the studio was never the same after that. He had viewed his staff like a big work family previously, like they were all on the same team. But after the strike, Walt's skepticism and distrust was uncovered permanently within his own company. Up until then, it was more of a distrust of outsiders, but now he trusted no one. This was also happening right after Fantasia and Pinocchio had each lost around a million dollars to a certain world war breaking out in 1939. 
Walt Disney Studios stock had plummeted from $25 a share to $4 a share, and their only hope of recovering was to finish the two movies that they had already been working on, Bambi and Dumbo, and just hope that these two projects could pull them back out of their almost $3 million debt. When Walt and Roy asked the Bank of America for more credit, the bank and the Disney stockholders urgently suggested that the company just lay off personnel. Walt instead doubled down on producing shorts, accelerated production, and more closely monitored employee efficiency, which, of course, added to worker stress. In desperation, I tried to keep these people employed by increasing their output, Walt on the verge of tears recounted the following year. I felt a responsibility to all these people. It was my mistake. I didn't know it. Some Disney employees empathized with the studios, and the other half obviously did not. Walt felt like his own employees were trying to do him in and take the opportunity to sabotage him while he was already down. I feel like as much as Walt tried to compartmentalize, he still was so sensitive and Mm -hmm. like took things so personally. For sure. He refused to apologize to the guy who was fired for instigating the strike, a longtime artist, Art Babbitt. So one day during the strike, when Walt was driving up to the studio, Babbitt, who was out front picketing, saw him coming and started screaming in the megaphone. Oh, there goes the great man. Shame on you, Walt Disney, and basically just defaming his character over the loudspeaker. Walt literally (laughs) jumped out of his car and charged at him, and they had to physically be pulled apart from each other. Oh. Strikes were nothing new. America was just crawling out of the Great Depression and modernizing themselves from an era of factories and industrialism, but Walt could not handle it. It felt personal to him, and he couldn't understand how so many of his employees were siding with the union and standing against him. Also, side note to his credit, most of the unions at the time were corrupt, and a lot of them were actually run by the mafia, like literally. Yeah, I didn't know that. Walt went to Variety magazine and published a letter to his employees on strike, and may or may not have called them all communists. (laughs) It was the thing to blame almost everything on at the time, especially in Hollywood. I'm sure you've heard of it. If you've um, seen the Coen Brothers movie, Hail Caesar, that vibe. Walt just wasn't used to being surrounded with this much negativity and friendly fire, and he just didn't handle it too well. He vented in a letter to a friend, the entire situation is a catastrophe. The spirit that has played such an important part in the building of the cartoon medium has been destroyed. I have a case of the DDs, disillusionment and discouragement. So dramatic, but like also just like completely pitiful. That would feel like such a betrayal. Like the world is like falling apart around you. Especially if he thinks like everyone is being taken so well care of. And like he just feels like he's doing the absolute best that he can do. Literally forsaking like certain aspects of the business just to keep people on and pay their salaries. And yes, he he gets in return. That would feel awful. Yeah, the easier thing would have been okay, just like lay off a bunch of people and then you'll be fine. The uh, Dumbo and Bambi movies are almost done. Lay off people and then once you premiere those movies and make the money, then you'll be fine. But like he didn't want to do that. And then those same people that he literally saved their jobs. Yeah. The next day after they published the letter, Walt got on a plane for a 10-week working tour of South America. He had to get away. And who do you think sent him on that trip to protect him and vowed to clean up the situation at home? For sure, his brother. His big brother, Roy. And he did it. He settled with the union and Walt was able to come back to a peaceful office once again. 
While he was away, though, Roy and Walt's father, Elias, passed away unexpectedly. Walt didn't come home early for the funeral, and Roy was perfectly fine with his brother and his hot temper staying away for this one. So Flora, the mom, died in November of 1938, and then Elias, the dad, died September 41. Not even really that long apart. Three years? Yeah. Walt was constantly pushing the envelope, and Roy was always right there behind him to tie up all the loose ends that Walt left blowing in the wind. Roy always knew when to hold firm and when to let Walt fly. Walt actually stopped talking to him for months during a business disagreement once in the late 40s. Obviously, things were resolved. Maybe that's the reconciliation where, like, the peace pipe was given, the one that was on Roy's office wall. I'm not sure. Wow, this they're, they're like, kind of old, too. I almost, feel like, get the feeling that, like, Walt was mature, but he didn't really, like, grow up ever. Like, he was kind of Peter Pan. Yeah, probably because of his just, like, natural personality. Probably part of because his job was to create things for children. So he was always in that mindset. And then also his brother Roy didn't force him to. Like, he didn't have to because... Roy was always there to, like, pick up the pieces and make it all... Okay. Yeah. You would think that Walt was the baby of the family, but... He kind of is like the baby brother, I guess. Yeah, he's definitely the baby in that relationship. Roy allowed Walt the very rare freedom of being able to chase absolutely any idea that struck him. And Walt had some really good ideas. Roy even created their own distribution company, Buena Vista, under the Disney umbrella when RKO Radio, who had worked with them for years, was reluctant about one of their movies. Roy's basically like... Whatever, we'll fix that. Go make your movie, Walt. Just like knocking down every single barrier. It actually ended up being the final step in gaining complete control over their, like, destiny, if you will. Complete freedom to create what Walt wanted, when they wanted, without outside influence or exploitation. They didn't trust people. Did I mention that? (laughs) I don't know, a couple of times maybe. They showed an insane amount of trust in each other, though, and leaned on each other without an ounce of doubt. It's like the amount of trust that everyone shells out to, I don't know, friends right. and other relatives. They just literally used up with each other. So the trust in each other was actually insane. Like yeah. almost not human. Yeah. But for everyone else, it was None. not human in the fact <laughs> that like they literally didn't trust people. Right. Wow. Roy and Walt were capable of incredible effort under ridiculous pressure. There were countless obstacles that the brothers faced in their life, but they used their unique talents and learned from their mistakes and always, always worked together. To understand how these brothers operate, we kind of have to understand on at least some level who they were as individuals. So Walt was as extroverted as you could get when it came to like the outside personality and desired to be in the limelight. Walt wanted to be somebody, to make a name for himself. He was one of the most driven people in all of American history. According to one of the animators who worked on Snow White, Walt Disney was a great man. Walt Disney was a genius. If you were his friend, he was a warm friend. If you crossed him, he was a mean SOB. And from what I've discovered, I actually think that that really bothered him. He wanted to be the persona that America believed him to be. He wanted to be the pure, innocent heart that he wrote into Mickey, but he knew that he wasn't. Roy, on the other hand, was almost his polar opposite. He was a gentle, quiet, introverted man. For every ounce of adventure in Walt, there was caution in Roy. Rumor has it that the Jiminy Cricket character in Pinocchio was modeled after Roy and his rescuer, mentor-like service to Walt and the role that he played throughout his life. Not me actually crying right now. Just actual tears. 
that like why does that like break my heart but also like warm it like why is that so mm-hmm. precious because it's so extreme yeah like, and yeah, like they he, were honestly he, so extreme in both of their personalities yes roy dedicated his life to walt oh and walt took him along for the adventure of a lifetime what is that um line in taylor swift song about like trusting you like a brother that's what i'm thinking of i'm laughing with my lover making force undercovers trust him like a brother yeah you know i did one thing right that's just like roy i did one thing right my baby brother stop don't even wreck me (laughs) i cut to cassie crying in her bedroom in an hour (laughs) oh no okay Roy would have been content with a very normal American life, except his favorite role he played was Big Brother. Also that. (laughs) Tears are streaming down Cassie's face. And his little brother wanted everything that life had to offer. And so that's what they did. Like my actual soul is in pain right now. Like why is my heart like actually physically hurting? I, if I let myself, I for sure 100% would cry right now. (laughs) Walt had one more idea in him, an amusement park, but not like anything the world had seen so far. Lillian, Walt's wife's first reaction was, why in the world would you want to litter the world with another disgusting, dirty, sad amusement park? And that was precisely Walt's point. This would basically not even be an amusement park. This was another thing entirely. It would be clean and pleasant and magical, and there would be entertainment for the whole family, not just for small kids. It would be the happiest place on earth, and he'd call it Disneyland. Roy was even harder to sell on the idea. It was going to take a large fortune to pull off, and what business did they have creating an amusement park? They were a film company. They didn't build roller coasters. And he had a responsibility to protect the shareholders. So the man who almost never told Walt no said no. Honestly, part three, like soul crushing. Soul shattering. Like one and two is just laying the groundwork. They're building you up to rip you apart. (laughs) But Walt was adamant. He got Roy to give him a measly $10,000 from the company. He sold his vacation home. He put his life insurance and all of his personal savings on the line and then started acquiring small personal loans from friends and employees. He even created a company called Wed Enterprises and fully funded it himself so that he could come up with the attractions without having to plead his case to shareholders. Side note, you might have already noticed, but Wed Enterprises is capital W-E-D, Walter Elias Disney Enterprises, which I think is so cute. This would also be home to his favorite new people, the Imagineers, but he still came up short of the amount he'd need, so he came to Roy with another idea to partner with a television network to document the whole thing and share the popularity of the Disney name with the TV station. They would get the value of having a show toting the Disney name, and the Disneys would complete their funding while simultaneously advertising for their new project. How does Walt still have so much energy left I have no idea. I would be dead at like emotionally physically mentally dead at this point like but i guess it it gave him life to see them come to fruition fruition. yeah Yeah, that's true but still oh my gosh i can't imagine like the extent to like what he had to go through oh my gosh yes his dreams accomplished but then again think about like okay for most people the reason that it would be so stressful and exhausting is because There's a ton of stress on, is this going to work? Am I going to be able to pull this off? What if I lose all this money? I need this money, da, da, da. And Walt literally never cared if, if, like, it made money. Like, Roy was always there to clean it up if it didn't, if it went bad, you know? Yeah. I also think that Walt, like, 
maybe subconsciously was okay with being poor and like working for no money because of his childhood right he worked his entire childhood and didn't get anything for his work he was almost just like out here having fun yeah like work to him whether he got paid or not like he was going to spend his life working so it might as well be fun he didn't care if he became rich in the process a hundred percent yes roy obviously had no issues with this it was smart it was inventive he gave walt the green light Walt came up with the proposal and shopped it around New York and signed a contract with ABC for a show called The Disneyland Hour. And oh my gosh, I don't know if you can just like look up The Disneyland Hour on YouTube, but they showed a little bit of it on Disney Plus in that like the Imagineering story and the visuals when I tell you it is so beautiful. It's black and white. I will put a picture here. It's aesthetically stunning. But anyway, it was a massive success, even in the early 1950s, years before Disneyland was open. Wait, the Disneyland hour is uh, not about the park? It's about like the creation of the park and stuff. Mm-hmm. And they actually aired it publicly before it was even done. Wow, that's ballsy. ballsy. Yeah, like <laughs> yeah. just have so much faith that this is going to get done and it's going to be great. We're always so, we are burned by things just like never working out how you think that they are. Yeah, and you just to. like publicly say, oh, this is what's happening, and then just hope years later that it's actually going to happen. Yeah. Because you've told the entire world. Crazy. They freaking did it. The first day Disneyland was open was a catastrophe. The bathrooms weren't working. <laughs> Too many people showed up. Apparently, there were a bunch of counterfeit tickets floating around. So when they expected 15,000 people that day, in reality, about 28,000 entered the park. A nightmare. Get this. The women's high heels were sinking into the streets because the cement hadn't had time to dry yet. It was that down to the wire before they opened. Yes. Uh, nightmare. See, this is why you don't know people ahead of time <laughs> yeah. when things are happening. The employees of the Disney company called it Black Sunday. And of course, Walt was pissed. Traumatizing. But they quickly figured it out and Disneyland was an almost instant success. Mouseketeer Sharon Baird remembers being with Walt that morning. On the opening day of Disneyland, we Mouseketeers were in Walt Disney's private apartment above the Main Street Fire Station when the gates of the park opened for the first time. I was standing next to him at the window, watching the guests come pouring through the gates. When I looked up at him, he had his hands behind his back, a grin from ear to ear. I could see a lump in his throat and a tear streaming down his cheek. He had realized his dream. I was only 12 years old at the time, so it didn't mean as much to me then. But as the years go by, that image of him becomes more and more endearing. And I've always heard about that secret apartment, but I didn't like actually know if it was true. And it's real. It's really there. And to this day, almost 70 years later, the apartment remains almost exactly the same. And the Disneyland staff keeps a light on at all times near the window to symbolize that Walt Disney's spirit still remains in the place where he created magic. Right when you think that the story cannot get any more emo. <sighs> Can you tell that I, an Enneagram 4, wrote this script? <laughs> <laughs> they did it. Roy was so happy and felt that he had done his job. His little brother had got to see his dream come to life. So after the park had been open for a little bit and was proving to be a success, he started to talk about retiring from his position as CEO. Get in some R&R. But, little brother, Walt loved Disneyland. So he had just one more big idea. They would outdo themselves just one more time with an even bigger and better Disney World. 
Now, this part of the story is crazy and massive and like freaking unheard of. And there's not enough time in the world to tell that story. Did you know that Disney World is actually its own city? Like it's not in Orlando or in any of the surrounding towns. It's its own self-sufficient city with a town hall, legislature, the whole nine yards. No, I definitely thought it was in Orlando. Yeah, no. This was Roy and Walt's doing. Can you guess why? Um, To have total control. (laughs) They wanted to do things however the heck they pleased, and they didn't want anyone else to be able to come in and shut them down or create red tape just to squeeze more money out of them in the future. Remember that thing about them not trusting anyone? They didn't even trust the city council. And the only people allowed to vote on operations in the city are taxpayers. Who's paying the taxes? Them. Wow, they just really know how to get crap done. There are so many crazy details like that in the story of the creation of Disney World. It was a top secret project and there were actually real life FBI agents involved. So if you want that story, I recommend season one of the Business Movers podcast, but we're going to focus on Roy and Walt's relationship during this period. Walt flew all around the country taking special care to pick the right location for this new project. Disney World would be their most impressive achievement yet, but no one could have ever guessed that just one year after embarking on this crazy idea, Walt would be gone. December 14th, 1966 at St. Joseph's Hospital right across from the Disney headquarters in Burbank, California. Roy was 73 years old, but his little brother was the one looking frail in the hospital bed. Walt mustered the energy to launch into a one-hour monologue about his vision for what they called Project Future. Disney World, and more specifically, Epcot. He told Roy that he was aware of how much Roy disapproved of Epcot, accusing him of only ever thinking about money. Roy replied, it is my job to think about money. Walt pleaded with him to carry out the project and to do it right. He told him that he knew he had no one else he could trust with it. So Roy promised. The next morning, Walt's condition deteriorated, and on December 15, 1966, Walt Disney passed away alone in his room, other than the doctors and nurses trying to save his life. Walt was once asked what would happen to his idea for a second park if he got hit by a truck or something random happened to him. Walt replied, absolutely nothing. My brother Roy runs this company. I just piddle around. Again with the soul crushing. They were brothers, business partners, and best friends. They really were everything to each other. They built their entire lives together. The combination of Walt's creativity and Roy's business competence would make one of the most powerful partnerships the world has ever known. Roy had an innate desire to provide for and protect Walt from the moment he was born until the day that Walt died. And Walt never had to know life without his brother Roy. That is where I lose it. Like, I cannot go on. Because he's actually crying. I, that sentence wrecks me every time. I can't handle it. After Walt died, several companies tried to purchase the Disney company, and others within the company thought that maybe they should just forget the whole Disney World project because it was a huge risk and no one knew if the company could survive without Walt, their captain. But Roy protected it, just as he had protected his little brother all those years. Perhaps his greatest act of love was carrying out Walt's dream with every perfect detail that he had dreamed up, even after he wouldn't be around to see it come to fruition. There were many opportunities to save money or small shortcuts that would have been the practical decision when building Disney World, but Roy took none of them. 
He kept everything exactly how his brother wanted. Everything except one thing. He changed the name of the project from Disney World to Walt Disney World, stating, Everyone knows the Ford motor car, but not everyone knows it was Henry Ford who invented it. Everyone will know this was Walt's dream. The secrets of making dreams come true. Curiosity, confidence, courage, consistency. And the greatest of all is confidence. When you believe in a thing, believe in it all the way. Walt Disney. So it all started with a mouse, except it didn't. It started with two brothers and a paintbrush on a barn wall and multiple failed businesses and a live action girl and a rabbit named Oswald and betrayal and determination and then a mouse. I cannot breathe. That ending is brutal, but like brutal. way, like what a way to go out. Yeah. Like, I mean, that was literally Roy's best case scenario. I think Roy got to do, I mean, Walt got to do everything that he wanted. Yeah. Roy never then, had to, like, it was better that Walt died first. Like a hundred percent. Roy would have wanted it that way. Yeah. Wow. I don't think Walt would have survived as long as Roy did without Roy. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Like Roy got to see the closure of like, okay, I, I literally did everything that I could to help my brother's dreams come true. Oh, <laughs> and we have nothing else to say about that. Speechless. I had no idea that their relationship was that intense and that all-encompassing and that like, I feel like intense is the right word because it's like they so. did not hold back with how much each other meant to them and like they were fine that everyone knew that, you know? Yeah, that they, they were, were not, enmeshed. They were not the picture yes. of balanced and health and whatever. It's like this was their life and that's how they wanted it. They chose it, yeah. Mm-hmm. They and they care. literally, their brother was their world. Wow. Absolutely crazy. But thank you so much for listening, you guys. We are always wanting to chat definitely about this story it's so crazy um i want to know if you guys have similar sibling relationships or what you think about the podcast so um visit us on instagram at blood and business and on youtube at blood and business or leave us a comment on this podcast please also rate and review because it helps us out so much being a small podcast um and share it with your friends thanks for listening Everyone who has a sibling right now is like sobbing on the phone. Like, <laughs> not okay. You need to take a week for recovery. Cremated. Like, it's gonna be okay. <laughs> Scattered in the ocean. <laughs> Bye. Bye.